to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. On November 14, the Centre held our second Harold Mitchell Development Policy Annual Lecture. Our speaker was Jim Adams, who has had an illustrious 37-year-long career at the World Bank, with extensive experience on Africa and the Pacific. Jim argued that economic reform in Africa has had tremendous payoffs. In a fascinating lecture, he set out the lessons learned from Africa for the Pacific and its donors. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I want to begin by thanking the Development Policy Centre and ANU for hosting this presentation. While at the World Bank, I came to appreciate the contributions of the centre and similar organisations and the work they can do in facing the challenges of development. In Washington, I interacted a great deal with Nancy Birdsall's Center for Global Development as regional vice president for East Asia and the Pacific. A similar relationship emerged with the DPC. These centers play a key role in fostering public engagement in development, thereby ensuring both improved understanding of development issues and support, hopefully, for development aid. Second, their independence from traditional donor resources allows them to be an objective, if not always appreciated, um, source of analysis and criticism of official aid. Finally, they are often in a much better position than traditional aid agencies to innovate and try new ways of doing business in in the aid business. I also want to acknowledge the commitment Harold Mitchell has made to the Development Policy Center. Having a secure private source of funds helps ensure the independence of the center, allowing the flexibility to take on difficult issues. As a former manager of a large bureaucracy that funded significant analytic work in East Asia and before that in Africa, I was very sensitive to the real pressures that exist for researchers to be overly responsive to the World Bank views or at times to pull punches when commenting on bank work. I've never found this a problem uh, with the independent centers. Today I would like to focus on a number of issues that I feel are central to successful development in low-income countries generally in the Pacific specifically. Economic reform, aid effectiveness, the role of the private sector, and capacity building. Drawing on my experience in both Africa and the Pacific, I tried to develop a number of themes on how to facilitate more rapid growth and poverty reduction. While I fully appreciate that many significant differences do uh, remain between the Pacific when compared to Africa, particularly the special constraints the Pacific faces with respect to size and distance. I also feel they confront many similar challenges. I will cite a number of best practices from Africa and suggest how they might be effectively applied in the Pacific. I will also review a number of areas where the Pacific and African programs face similar problems, suggesting ideas which governments in the donor community might consider for action. I begin with the challenge of economic reform. Since the World Bank is primarily an economic institution, and as noted, I spent over 37 years there, my focus on economic reform and the central role that economic policymaking plays in facilitating economic growth and poverty reduction will surprise no one. However, I believe a bit of history is both important and informative. The fact is that through its first 30 years of existence, the World Bank was quite comfortable by focusing on project investments and improving policy only in fairly narrow areas of sector development. The dominance of infrastructure in early bank lending 
and the bank's continued concentration on focusing investment projects as the breadth of its mandate expanded over time reflected a confidence well into the 1970s that investment lending and improved sectoral policies and institutions would lead to rapid development progress. The fact that so many countries graduated from bank lending certainly reinforced this view. I would remind the audience that the first bank loans were to France and the Netherlands, that Japan was the bank's largest borrower in the 1950s, and that many EU clients were active bank borrowers until reaching high income status. Needless to say, the bank also remains quite proud of its financial support for the Snowy Mountain Hydro Scheme. It was only with the second oil crisis in the late 1970s and the resulting economic disequilibrium that this environment was seriously challenged. The realization that the recycling of petrodollars that marked the first oil crisis would not be possible and sustainable, and that macro policy weaknesses were so broad across the developing countries were seriously constraining and were seriously constraining economic growth, led to a basic questioning of the bank's model of operations. As summarized in Nick Stern's contribution to the history of the World Bank at 50, and I quote, the launching of structural adjustment lending programs in February 1980, McNamara's speech to the Board of Governors in September 1980, and the choice of adjustment as the main topic of the 1981 World Development Report were fundamental in drawing the attention of many in the developing development community, policymakers and academics alike, to the magnitude of the challenge of adjustment. End quote. While its engagement in macro reform and structural adjustment would create significant pain for the bank over the rest of the 20th century, it was a commitment that has had an enormous impact on its role in developing countries. Increasingly, the bank became a policy-focused institution, far more engaged in economic policies at the macro level. The recognition that policy change can often have a far greater impact on development than project investments became ingrained in bank thinking. Policy analysis expanded rapidly, most of it linked to country analysis. Structural adjustment lending became a dominant focus of many bank country lending programs. Particularly in Latin America and Africa, the need for major changes in economic policy became a focus of bank work. Interestingly, the more stable growth and better economic policies that marked East Asia in the 80s resulted in that region becoming less involved in the early adjustment debate. It would, of course, become actively engaged after the Asian financial crisis in the 90s. Because I was personally involved in the African story, and as I want to relate that to the challenges the Pacific faces today, I'll focus on that experience. Central to the bank's approach to reform in Africa in the early 80s was the so-called Berg Report. Led by Professor Elliot Berg, an African expert from the University of Michigan, and supported by a small team of bank staff, this report presented a forceful message on the need for broad policy reform in Africa. Drawing heavily from bank operational experience, it argued for an agricultural and export-oriented growth strategy, underlined the need for trade and exchange rate adjustments, focused on providing more disciplined budgets, reductions in government controls, a reduced role for parastatals, an increased role for the private sector, and for major investments in education and the health sectors. This report stood in stark contrast to the response to the crisis developed under the leadership of the UN Commission for Africa, the Lagos Plan of Action. 
While both reports call for increased aid to address the crisis in Africa and its economic problems, the Lagos Plan placed all of the blame, or most of the blame, for the crisis on developments outside Africa and rejected the Berg Report's argument that to be effective, aid had to be accompanied by serious policy reforms. In retrospect, the World Bank risked its reputation in Africa with this emphasis on reform and adjustment. While programs certainly had country-specific elements, the major themes of the Berg Report were broadly reflected in programs that received financing across the continent. While the subsequent work by John Williamson that became known as the Washington Consensus was largely based on Latin American experience, the major themes of that work also guided African adjustment efforts. The bank cooperated with the IMF on the full range of micro issues. It also worked closely with the broader donor community to mobilize additional resources to ensure that programs were fully funded. The bank became a target for considerable criticism of its new priorities throughout the 80s and early 90s. Many governments felt the bank was being too intrusive and prescriptive, resenting the conditionality that marked much much of the structural lending. The NGO community rejected the dominant economic focus of the bank, questioning the likely impact of the proposed reforms. And in-country vested interests affected by the reforms worked hard to undermine many of the policy changes. Yet if one looks at the economic scene of Africa today, one can't help but be impressed by the tremendous changes that mark countries that were serious about reform. Overall growth rates are robust. Budgets are far more disciplined. Agricultural prices have been liberalized. More disciplined market-driven exchange systems are universal. Governments have been downsized. Regulations have been reduced. And there is the emergence of a more effective private sector. Increased resources have been allocated to education and health across the region. At the same time, even I would concede that mistakes were made. Too often the bank-focused programs that were overly optimistic, in particular bank assumptions on how quickly reforms could reverse economic declines, were unrealistic across the region. Second, many programs were too ambitious and overly complex. They often overwhelmed government implementation capacity. Finally, in numerous cases, governments signed up to reforms but were not committed to their execution. Needless to say, this didn't produce constructive results. On balance, I firmly believe history will conclude that the long-term impact of the reforms that marked the 80s and 90s in Africa has has been overwhelmingly positive. To underline this point, I'd like to cite a number of examples of the effect of reform programs on changes in GDP growth rates in the region. In Burkina Faso in the first half of the 1980s, its average GDP growth was 1%. Over the last five years, through 2012, it rose to 6.2%. Ghana was broadly seen as a basket case in the early 80s, with an average growth rate of minus 1.9%. Over the last five years, Ghana has recorded growth of 8.6%. In Mozambique, early 80s growth averaged minus 3.9%. Recent growth rate reached 7%. Finally, in Tanzania, countries in which I was the bank's country director from 1995 to 2002, their respective growth rates of 0.8% and 2.1% in the 80s increased to 6.7% and 5.9% over the past five years. 
It's interesting that in the November 2nd edition of The Economist, there was a discussion that covered four of these countries that made a key point that I would underline. These are not countries that have relied on the global resource boom driven by China, a factor well known in Australia. The article, which actually came out after I produced my list on reforming countries, reinforces the message on the role of economic reform in the changes and notes a number of other important improvements in performance in these, three, in these countries. As I know, some will express a concern that GDP growth rates don't necessarily reflect broader development progress. I also think it's important to note the results of the household surveys that have been conducted in the two countries that I was formerly responsible for. At the beginning of reforms in Tanzania and Uganda in the late 80s, both countries faced poverty levels of more than half their populations. Re recent surveys indicate that poverty levels in Tanzania have fallen to 26% and in Uganda to 25%. Growth has clearly been accompanied by real improvements in living standards in low-income segments of both countries. Contrast these numbers with the performance that has marked the Pacific over the same period. In Fiji, economic growth rates remain stable at 0.7% a year. In Kiribati, average growth fell from 1.5% to 1.4%. In Samoa, the respective averages did improve from minus 3.6% to a modest 0.7%. In Solomon Islands, a more impressive increase was, was recorded from minus 0.4% to 5.1%, but this has obviously been affected by Ramsey inputs and I would net note improved economic performance. In Tonga, the 80s average of 3.7% fell to 2.3%, and Vanuatu also recorded a fall from 3.7% to 3%. Interestingly, PNG was the one country that more looked more like Africa. And by, aided by, certainly by its resource boom, its average growth of zero in the 80s rose to 7.8% over the past five years. The message I draw from this quick and dirty analysis is that serious economic reform programs can dramatically and positively impact economic growth. While the Pacific does not face the levels of crisis Africa faced in the early 80s, and given some of the constraints the Pacific faces, I would not suggest it is possible to immediately replicate some of the African examples referred to, it remains clear to me that the very low growth rates of PGDP in the Pacific can and should be more aggressively addressed. More specifically, as my first observation, I would suggest a greater emphasis on economic reform in the Pacific, and it can play substantial dividends over time. I would note that experience with reform is an important asset in developing successful country-specific efforts. In-country capacity exists in the Pacific, but is limited. I will return to this issue at the end of my presentation with a discussion of how African reform capacity has dramatically improved over the past 25 years. On the donor side, I would highlight a number of strengths in the Pacific. First, the IMF is scaling up its work in the region. They have a team of solid experts in Fiji, and I hope some of you will have the opportunity next week to attend the presentation at the Development Policy Center by Patricia Tumbarello, the IMF team leader for the Pacific. I had the privilege of working with her at the end of my tenure and can attest to her determination to increase IMF support and involvement in the region. Secondly, both the World Bank and Asian Development Bank have worked on reform across the region and have significant capacity in this area. In addition, the EU 
has become an important actor in the Pacific and has significant experience in reform under both its African and Eastern European programs. Finally, economists from across the Australian system have a role to play. There is unique and deep experience on the Pacific in both the academic community and within government. I would, however, note that the emphasis on expanding economic capacity within the former OSAID is fairly recent. Its chief economist, Michael Conahan, has been devoting considerable time to strengthening this capacity. My second observation would be to underline the importance of this effort. Since Australia still oversees a large portion of the overall resources devoted to the Pacific, increased economic capacity under the new DFAD leadership could help ensure that reforms get appropriate attention in the composition of the aid program. A quick third observation. Would it now be timely to consider a Pacific report along the lines of the Berg report that reviews potential economic policy changes that would positively impact growth in the Pacific? My second theme is on aid dependency and aid effectiveness. The Pacific is a very aid-dependent region. I'd like to tell a story to underline this point. My first trip to Australia as Vice President for East Asia was actually, uh, I accompanied Bob Zellick on his first trip in the bank where he came to Australia to participate in an APEC meeting. Um, as is always the tradition in the bank, briefing books were produced, and as is my tradition, I never read them. As we traveled on the long plane ride from Los Angeles to Sydney, I figured it was time to actually look at them, and in perusing the briefing books, I found a statistic that I simply didn't believe. In the, in the briefing book, it indicated that per capita aid uh, contributions in the Pacific were $315 U.S. a year. I didn't think this was possible given my experience because in Africa, where I had what I thought were generous programs in Tanzania and Uganda, they were $40 per year. So I was convinced this was a mistake and, and, and worried about how I explained this to Mr. Selleck because he was a bit of a micromanager and would, would pick up this detail. Fortunately, he was in first class and I was in business class, so we didn't meet during the long trip. But as soon as I got off the plane, I ran to our country director, Nigel Roberts, pointed to this number and said, it must be wrong. Well, Nigel looked apologetic and he said, well, you're probably right, Jim, but the actual number is probably larger. <laughs> and so I, I got very quickly the message that uh, this is a very aid-dependent region. The present levels of per capita aid support to the Pacific continue to be at levels that are multiple of my African experience. I use U.S. dollars. I apologize for that, but that's what the World Bank uses, and I use their data set for this. All the Northern Islands receive over U.S. $1,000 per capita per year. Tonga receives $896. Solomon receives $620. Samoa receives $532. PNG receives $87 per capita a year, and even under the present overall constraints that Fiji faces, it receives over $75 per year. Today, Tanzania and Uganda receive $53 and $45, respectively. While there is an understandable upward bias in supporting smaller states, it is also clear to me that given their size, the quality of donor programs has a particularly important impact on life in the Pacific. One special issue facing the Pacific is the heavy reliance on Australian support. In Tanzania and Uganda, there were over two dozen active donors. And while this sometimes resulted in issues of fragmentation, it also ensured that no single donor's funding was essential to macro stability. Australia does not have this flexibility, 
in its relationships with the Pacific, creating pressures which need to be carefully managed. Recognizing these pressures and realizing that multilateral support might be helpful in dealing with these issues, over the past decade, both the World Bank and ADB have worked hard to ensure they were more engaged in the Pacific. During my tenure in East Asia, bank lending to the Pacific members grew from an average of $23 million U.S. a year to $127 million. To support this program, the bank has increased the size of its Sydney office, created a country office in the Solomons, expanded the bank office in PNG, and uniquely in the multilateral lending system, established joint offices with the ADB in Samoa, Tonga, Kiribati, and Vanuatu. Australia has been fully supportive of these efforts. In addition, the region has benefited from increased EU support. In particular, their work on regional activities is substantial. Reflecting these developments, today the Pacific is getting broader support from a more diversified donor community, underlining again the importance of ensuring that donors are properly organized and that the impact of their funding is maximized. Based on my experience, I have a number of observations on this issue. One best practice in many countries of Africa that has more recently emerged in the Solomon Islands is that of creating an economics working group among donors to oversee and coordinate economic dialogue with the government. Such a group can ensure that consistent and well thought out economic policy advice is communicated to governments. It can also arrange that all analytic work is broadly available to donors for reactions and suggestions. Finally, it can serve as a sounding board for government thinking on policy issues. My understanding is that this practice is now growing in the Pacific. My fourth observation is that it would seem appropriate to expand quickly such groups across all the Pacific countries. Another African practice is to secure at least an annual meeting with senior government officials on their use of aid. This has a long tradition in Asia as well. These in-country meetings provide an opportunity for donors to engage in a dialogue with senior government officials on key issues. In my experience, the president or prime minister typically participated in a portion of these meetings. These meetings allow also participation of visiting headquarters staff in the country dialogue when that is desired. And they give governments the space to comment on donor concerns and priorities. These meetings require a clear agenda, are increasingly open to the public, and provide the opportunity for discussion of analytic work that has been completed by donors of the government. My fifth observation is that I think this practice could usefully be replicated across the Pacific. With the, very large donor with the very large role donor resources play in Pacific government expenditure programs, it is also key that there be a more systematic review of annual budget proposals. Specifically, I think the case for annual public expenditure reviews where donors review with the government the key elements of the budget is very strong. This will facilitate interaction on government priority setting and allow constructive exchanges on resource allocation options and on past budget performance. My experience is that this work will also help build capacity in the ministries of finance, as well as improving information flows across both donors and government agencies. Today I understand the Development Policy Center is working actively on this issue in PNG. I congratulate them for this initiative. My sixth observation would be to propose that annual PERs become a regular product across the Pacific. One trend emerging across the development community is an increased focus on development results 
as opposed to the traditional emphasis on inputs to development activities. I'm a big supporter of this, particularly in the social sectors. The World Bank has developed a new instrument, the P4R, which provides a framework for this work. And my view is that this offers a real opportunity to better align donor support with impact on the ground. My seventh observation would be to suggest that work on results based on lending, work on results-based lending be given a higher priority in the Pacific. In my view, good data is essential to improve policy making. In this area, the Pacific is actually in much better shape than Africa. Long-term support from statistical agencies in Australia and New Zealand and the solid work of the SPC statistical group have had a positive impact. But I would cite three areas where I think more can and should be done. First, while the IMF has secured solid macro data across the region, there remain important gaps at the sector level. It would be useful to ensure that the work needed to have comprehensive sectoral data is that it's done on a systematic basis to close, close this gap be, be an urgent priority. Second, the statistical needs of small states cannot be addressed by simply applying agreed, the, the agreed international framework. It would be too costly and, quite frankly, not very helpful. I know there's been work in SBC on developing an approach to the specific, to the specific statistical needs of small islands. I feel this should be given appropriate support. Finally, there's a lot of interesting work ongoing in Africa on surveys to provide better insights into the actual conditions in the social sectors. I understand similar work is being conducted by the DPC in PNG as well. Focusing on such issues as the hours teachers actually teach, the availability of drugs in health centers, etc., this work will give a far better sense of the quality of services than we've had in the past. I believe it should also be more broadly supported. My eighth observation is that increased intention to improve data and expanded survey work in the Pacific will pay large dividends. Finally, I believe the region has a unique opportunity in the Pacific Island Forum leadership meeting. Specifically, the meeting includes a post-forum dialogue, which I feel is a unique opportunity to address Pacific-wide challenges. However, I also believe this event can be more effectively utilized to improve aid effectiveness. A graduate of four forums, I feel the opportunity to interact with all the heads of state in the Pacific is a special opportunity to review key issues in donor coordination and aid challenges. However, I have been disappointed that preparation for this interaction was limited. As a result, the post-forum dialogue is often unfocused, and the message emerging from that session have had little imp limited impact. My ninth observation is that I think the donors need to take a more structured and serious approach to the post-forum dialogue. There should be a clear agreement on the one or two issues that will be the focus of debate. Appropriate analytic work should be done to facilitate this dialogue, and the donors should ensure their side of the dialogue is well-structured and disciplined. My third theme is on the private sector. One of the key messages of the adjustment era was that there are limits to the size of government and the future growth and employment prospects in developing countries depended directly on the health and expansion of the private sector. This is not a message that has been broadly embraced in either Africa or the Pacific. Their common history of a private sector being dominated by outside forces or minority groups has resulted in ambivalence about the role of the private sector and often a reluctance to address private sector concerns. One would have hoped that this situation 
could have been reversed by the dramatic transformation that private sector telecom investments have resulted in, both in Africa and in the Pacific. Yet honesty demands that I note in both regions the off-stated interest of governments in the private sector is not matched by actions which would provide a welcoming and supportive environment for private sector development. This ambivalence clearly emerges in the annual analysis the bank and its private sector arm, the International Finance Corporation, IFC, conducts on doing business each year. This work results in an annual report which provides a comprehensive assessment of country performance on key business issues. The 2014 report rated 190, 189 countries over 11 areas of business regulation. Among others, this included starting a business, dealing with construction permits, registering property, getting credit, getting electricity. In addition, a separate report is produced annually on, on island countries with, with an important focus on the Pacific. Reviewing Pacific performance in the context of this series of doing business reports is not encouraging. While three Pacific countries have consistently been listed in the top third of performers, Tonga, Samoa, and Fiji, the relative ranking of each of these countries has fallen since the ranking of countries began in 2006, when 155 countries were ranked. This is in clear contrast to the African story. Nine of the 20 countries that have recorded the greatest improvements in performance relative to the frontiers of performance have been in Africa. Indeed, Rwanda is typically cited as the single best performer at improving its business environment. It moved from 30, 139th place in the ratings to 32nd place today. The story is even worse for the rest of the Pacific. All the remaining countries have seen large declines in their rankings. Solomon's from a ranking of 53rd to a ranking of 97th. Palau from 50th to 100th. PNG from 64th to 113th. Marshalls from 48th to 114th. <coughs> Kiribati from 45th to 122nd, and Micronesia from 56th to 156th. I would quietly add that this is in a region that has three of the 11 highest performers. Singapore at number one, Australia at number three, and I quietly add New Ze Australia at number 11, and I quietly add New Zealand at number three. <laughs> Clearly, there has not been a positive regional effect. My tenth observation is straightforward. A greater focus on improving the Pacific environment for the private sector is timely and could play important dividends. Indeed, if I had it to do again, I would have given a higher priority to following up the doing business work in the Pacific. IFC correctly led the work, but perhaps increased support from the bank side could have been effective in increasing the intention of bank Pacific governments to these key issues. To address financial sector needs, IFC directly supports private sector across the Pacific. IFC management has worked hard to substantially increase these investments over the recent past. Led by Gavin Murphy, the IFC office, Murray, the IFC office in Sydney rapidly expanded its staff of investment officers and established a number of new country offices. In the three years before 2007, IFC lending to the Pacific averaged about $20 million a year. In the last three years of my tenure, Gavin and his team lent an average of almost $110 million a year, and they've continued to maintain lending of about $100 million a year since. 
Reflecting on my experience in Africa, I would question whether there are enough options for longer-term lending in the Pacific. Africa today benefits from a plethora of European development finance companies that work with its private sectors. FMO in the Netherlands, CDC in the UK, Proparco in France, DEG in Germany, etc. An 11th observation. Would it be timely to consider the development of a development finance company along these lines to support long-term finance in the Pacific? Perhaps a joint effort with New Zealand could be considered. I'd like to move on now to capacity building. There's one capacity building success in Africa that I want to discuss, which I think has a particular relevance to the Pacific. In the mid-1980s, when the call for structural adjustment was at its peak, a clear sense emerged that too much of the debate on reform and adjustment was dominated by outsiders, particularly by the international finance institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, and European donors. There was a recognition that local capacity involved was small and of very limited capacity. The near total absence of solid economic analysis emerging from within the continent was an obvious, obvious gap requiring action. There was a parallel concern about the quality of economic training in the region. In direct response to this concern, in the three East African countries, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, an effort was led by the Rockefeller Foundation and a Canadian economist at IDRC, Jeff Fine, to put in place support for developing a network of qualified, policy-focused economists. Called the African Economic Research Consortium, AERC, it began operations in 1988. From its initiation, this effort included a program of funding economic policy work by young economists and a training program for master's students. Interestingly, it chose the master's level because it quickly identified the constraint that the basic level of existing training in economics across the region was so weak that a PhD program simply would not be able to identify suitable qualified applicants. In both areas, there was a specific and determined focus on quality from day one. While, the IR, while AERC quickly reached out to fund proposals for macroanalysis, largely from, university, largely from economists and university faculties, from its inception, it had a strict program of peer reviews and closely monitored the work that it was funding. Reviews were completed by both were, were, were reviewed by both the best economists in Africa and recognized experts from abroad. The practice of twice-a-year research workshops was established, where senior economists acted as resources to criticize and strengthening the ongoing policy work. For the master's programs, reviews were done of the capacity of, of African universities to deliver potential courses. Courses had to meet strict quality standards in order to receive AERC support. Moreover, in order to respond to the course gaps that were identified in this process, AERC set up a res residential program that gathered students from across the region to Nairobi and engaged qualified teachers from Africa and abroad to address the gaps that were identified. The early success of the AERC program led to its rapid expansion. Today, it has funded over 3,000 researchers since 1988 and is now funding a portfolio of hundreds of ongoing policy studies. Second, it has expanded to involve countries outside East Africa. Today, it is involved in research and training across the continent. Third, it has funded a new generation of master's students and has expanded its program to include a PhD program 
in close cooperation with both regional universities and outstanding international universities. Finally, it is an annual senior policy seminar which brings together African policymakers and researchers to discuss current policy topics of interest. Its budget has risen from $1 million in 1988 to $15 million a year today. It has sustained strong support from traditional international donors, but also now receives funding from a number of African countries. Most important, perhaps, is the broad and effective impact the policy work and training is having across the region. Today, governments across the continent see AERC-funded work as central to their policy-making processes. They're no longer totally dependent on outside researchers and donors. In addition, AERC graduates are increasingly taking on senior policy positions across Africa. The first program director in AERC, Beno Ndulu, is now governor of the Central Bank in Tanzania. His counterparts in both Kenya and Uganda have been directly involved in AERC work. The South African chief economist of the African Development Bank is a graduate of AERC work. Just last month at a development conference, I sat next to Kolab Fundanga, the recently retired governor of the Zambia Central Bank. His next stop was at AERC, where he was chairing a program review meeting. I could go on. AERC work is now almost a requirement for senior technical positions in ministries of finance, ministries of planning, and central banks across the region. For me, three messages emerged for the Pacific from this experience. First, increased Pacific capacity in economic policy analysis will be critical to address the challenges of economic reform discussed above. Second, gaps in regionally-based economic policy analysis capacity, while perhaps not as serious as the situation in Africa in the 1980s, remains large. Third, there is a continuing shortage of capable policymakers in many countries in the Pacific. My final observation is that the AERC model provides a useful framework for, for the region to consider to be more effectively address the constraints noted. I am not suggesting a simple copy of the AERC model, but I do feel the considerable experience of AERC over the last quarter century provides some useful guidance to such an effort in the Pacific. I'd like to close with just a few comments. I hope it's recognized that as a result of the work that I did um, in the bank, on the Pacific, and on East Asia. I do have some strong views, but I have views that I think um, really reflect an interest in improving economic performance and consistently improving the lives of people in the Pacific. I think the challenge today is to look at these issues, to reflect on these issues, and for the governments in the region, working with the donors and working with the significant resources that the donors pride, to address more effectively the challenges that they face as developing countries. Thank you. Jim, you've given us an awful lot to think about. Um, we've got time uh, for some questions. Um, just while you're getting your questions loaded, um, let me uh, observe, Jim, that uh, a little over 10 years ago there was, there was something of a a debate going on in this country in which people spoke um, in, in somewhat pejorative terms of the Africanization of the Pacific and how quaint that debate seems now in light of what you've been telling us uh, tonight. Um, pause over. Could I just ask people, uh, time's limited. Uh, 
like questions. Um, and if you could identify yourself, please. One, two. Sabish. Um, Jim, Sabish Chan. Um, what are the lessons? I mean, you, you didn't talk about politics of policy making and predicting politics of economic reform. I just wonder what are the lessons from Africa in terms of creating the political conditions, particularly in having divided communities, for the sort of economic reform we have been talking about? Oh, hello, I'm David Lucas um, from the ANU. I've worked in Africa and in the Pacific. Um, if you look at the uh, on the web, you'll see that the only area, geographical area, uh, where there is no taught course or unit at the ANU is Africa. If you look at the ANU research in Africa, you'll see it's largely non-economic areas such as prehistory. So I'm really asking you, if we've got so much to learn from Africa, perhaps the ANU, notably the Crawford School, should make a bit more of an effort. Thank you. Let's take okay. two at a time. Let me take these two. Uh, first of all, politics of economic reform. Um, there's been a lot of work recently that argues reform is all about politics. And I have an enormous amount of sympathy with that argument. Um, I think that uh, the fact of the matter is that a lot of the economic issues are fairly straightforward. You know, when you talk about liberalizing an exchange rate, the fund can tell you 20 ways to do that. The challenge is how do you build political support for those reforms? And I think this comes to two key issues. One which I think the bank has improved its effectiveness on by moving a lot of its decision making from Washington to the field because it is much more about relationships and about the ability to communicate analysis and explain analysis than to do analysis. Uh, the, sec the second point I'd make, and it's, it's an important one, is that the, the first steps of these reforms were really tough. I mentioned Ghana. Ghana was an early reformer. One of the nice things that happens over time is that if something starts working, governments do take it more seriously. And it was always a disappointment to me looking at East Asia because I assumed the regional effect would be positive. But I think because the Pacific is so different than the rest of East Asia, that, that hasn't happened. So my view is part of the challenge is to begin to get governments thinking about reform, to be able to demonstrate some positive results, and it creates a, a much, more constructive, a much con more constructive basis for that discussion. But it is all about politics. The economics is not as hard as convincing governments that they have to change policies, to convince governments that they can absorb the costs of policy change, and we'll see real benefits from policy change. Africa, I have to say, if we had this discussion 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been quite as aggressive and confident as I am today. So there is a time dimension to that. Um, but I do think the Africa story is, is undersold in terms of what's happened in the region. And I do think, as I've, I've argued throughout, that there are some important similarities with the Pacific and that some more work on Africa could pay benefits in terms of that dialogue and economic policy in the Pacific. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer that this experience does have some direct relevance to the Pacific and some, some stronger analytic work on that would be an important asset. Yeah, Patrick, I just want to raise sort of the issue that hasn't been mentioned, that's that China is a major donor. It's a major donor 
for the last 10 years or so in Africa. It's been a major donor in the Pacific for the last 10 years. It's quite different to the bank and a lot of other bilateral donors is it actively eschews giving policy advice whilst being a major competitor, if you want, or alternative source of finance. So the effects of that on what you're talking about. Down here. Uh, Jonathan Price from the Development Policy Centre. Um, my question is regarding small island states in the Pacific. How far can economic reform really take us um, with those countries, considering the limitations you've already highlighted of uh, size and distance and dependency? Um, aren't, isn't a more viable solution for long-term growth and prosperity in these, in these contexts through other mechanisms and particular migration? Do you want to take two? Okay. First, China. The reality is that until recently, there's not a lot of resource flow from China to Africa. It's all happened pretty recently and well after the reforms. But where China has been interestingly very involved, it, it's a dominant uh, contractor under World Bank funding and under African Development Bank funding. So the African presence has increased. If you look at the actual aid flows, they're not, they're not very large. They are starting to increase, and they are going to become important. But so far, the amount of actual subsidized aid is, is not that important. Um, in terms of China, yes, they say they don't give advice. But there are a lot of donors out there that don't give advice. So I don't think that distinguishes China. But uh, you know, working at the bank context, I felt it was part of my job to give advice and to work very hard with building relationships to try to convince government that these advice you know, were practical, sensible, and would produce solid benefits. Um, I, you know, if, if you go to my basic hypothesis, if Africa continued with the policies it had in, in the 80s, I wouldn't have been able to make any of the nice remarks that I've made in, in my honest view. Um, you were hemorrhaging budget money. Exchange rates were fixed, heavily overvalued discriminating heavily against agriculture, um, very large public sectors which weren't very effective. And actually, and this will come back to the China story, because I often confronted, particularly as the China story became more successful, the argument, look, China's done very well with a large public sector. And there is truth to that. I mean, a lot of the surpluses in China today are included in parastatals. But if you compare China performance in the public sector with African performance, in the public sector, you come to a very different conclusion. Africa simply did not have the capacity, either at the at either the operational level or the policy level, to run a very large government. And so, I think there are all sorts of practical advice one can give, much much more closely tied to the realities of the African countries. Small states. Look, I'm a big believer in migration. The bank did a lot of work on identifying in the Pacific best practices for labor practices so the governments can open up. And actually, New Zealand was much more responsive to our advice than Australia at the time. And some of that advice has paid pretty large dividends. On economic policies, I, I've noted the constraints because I want to be honest. But if you ask me whether my goal is the present level of GDP growth that's overcoming the Pacific and can good policies contribute to improvements, I'm very forceful in saying you know, the target isn't 1% to 2%. You know, maybe 7% is, is ambitious, but 4 to 5% is not. And I actually believe that across most of the region, better policies could do that. I also have to say that, 
you know, coming to grips with the, with the Fiji issue is an important issue. Fiji could play a more important role in facilitating regional growth, but it hasn't chosen that role. Um, you know, some of the governments in the region are concerned about the political side. That wasn't the issue I had to confront in the bank. I wasn't to deal with politics. But I can tell you we did a lot of work on economic policies in Fiji. And there's, you know, they've still got... They still got price controls. I mean, you start there, and I can tell you ten things Fiji can do to grow from a very low growth rate. Uh, Fiji can grow at five to seven percent, I think, very easily, and become an important source of some regional dynamism. So I'm not promising that everything is going to be fine, and I'm also very careful. There's been a long debate about sustainability in the Pacific. Um, I don't think sustainability is the right issue. There are some countries in the Pacific that are going to require support for a long time. But what to me is the issue is you should be asking governments to do the best they can do within the resource constraints that they have. And, and that's where I would put my emphasis and focus. That if the region does that, that I think better performance is possible. And, and what that reinforces, I feel very strongly, is both the ownership that government has for policies and the quality of over time both policies and, and practices will improve. And instead of me, this Campbell, I work with Mitchell. I've had the privilege of working on Pacific issues for a large part of my career. And I could come up with three issues that really impact agriculture. The first you mentioned is capacity. And despite years and years and years of capacity building exercises, we still have not got that right. So thanks for your observations. The second is very poor gender equality. And the third is corruption. And on that last point, I was hoping you had a few practical tips on how policy makers need to support corruption. Bob Watson from the National Sustainability Institute. Um, how sustainable is the African GDP growth rate? Is it sustainable from a social and environmental perspective? And second, how important was the MDG process to summon that growth in Africa? Kenny Preston-Stanley from the Australian Labour Programme. Uh, you mentioned that we're looking more heavily at economic growth. One of the questions there is really which we focus and can improve business enabling environment versus support firms to increase employment or, or change their own environment. Uh, so I'm wondering if you have views on where the correct balance lies there, perhaps drawing on the degree to which Africa's change came from external advice versus the efforts to build local economists. Colleagues, we're going to run out of time. People have to get to dinner. I'm going to stretch Jim's patience one iota by taking the final question. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, this is such a difficult to say. I like that. I agree with Lucas. The importance of Africa, um, not the, the fact that we have highlighted um, what has happened in Africa, it is an underserved story. And um, one of the things that comes to mind is that it, um, you know, we talk of the uh, per capita, the very small per capita for Africa, you talk of figures of twenty twenty five dollars and um, in, in, in Asia, you know, much more. And yet um, there's an expectation there that Africa should, you know, should 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 be somewhere else when it really are feeling as much in there as as it wants to take out. But as I strongly believe also that um, in, in, 
Australia Australia in terms of um, the raw materials in Africa and where Africa is going. Um, it is a very important thing that Africa should be on the map in Australia right now. I know in um, Perth, a lot of universities are um, doing a lot of projects with Well, first of all, um, just a quick remark on gender, because actually, I think Africa this is another area where Africa and Pacific face similar challenges. I have some good news. The, uh, I'll go to Rwanda again. It turns out the highest percentage of women parliamentarians in the world is in Rwanda. It's over 50%. Um, this is a government that's done a lot of interesting things. It has some, there are some real concerns on the political front about Rwanda. But this is an example of a government that's looked at an issue, decided gender was important, and done something about it. Um, if, if for my sins, um, some people will know I, I, I chair the independent committee that oversees evaluation in the in OSAID. And I think it's a very important report coming out in the OSAID context, and obviously particularly relevant for DFAT now, in terms of the lessons of what's been done on gender. There's some very, I've seen drafts, there's some very positive messages, but there are also some real gaps. So I, I just, on gender, I do want to say, while I didn't discuss that, I think that is an important issue. Corruption. To me, corruption is the hardest issue we confront. And I've been through in the bank all sorts of attempts to deal with corruption. And I have to be honest, most of them haven't succeeded. I am a big believer in the public expenditure review in terms of what it can do in terms of talking about allocations. But that's corruption at a very macro level. The challenge in most of these countries is corruption at the micro level and behaviors across governments which undermine I think, the success of government's programs. Um, I only really have two messages on this that I certainly pushed very hard. One is I think we've got to do a better job of recognizing, in a sense, leadership on this issue can't come from the outside donor community. We have to find stronger alliances within these countries, people within these countries that are prepared to speak up and behave in a way that can be reinforced by the donor community. Um, the, second, the second piece of, of where I feel analysis is important is I think good analysis can elaborate on some issues. And I'll, I'll give an example. In, in Ghana, we did some surveying of firms, and we identified that the level of corruption in the country was almost as large as the level of net profits in the business community. I mean, it was just enormous. So I do think well-focused analytic work and bring up issues in a way that people within the country will confront it. They'll ask the hard questions. It doesn't have to be moralizers from outside raising the issue. It's a serious issue within the country. I think the good news is with internet, and with the openness of communications, that avenue is much, much more productive today than it ever was. So my sense is we, we step back from some of the direct interventions which look like Governance is a problem to donors. And we always have to balance that from a recognition that you know, our superiors and the people that provide the funds are going to be concerned about how money is used. So I'm not saying we're oblivious to what happens. But on the direct action front, we do things that reinforce and stimulate people within the country to deal with it, because I, I feel that's a much more effective approach. Um, on private sector, external advice and internal work, um, I think both are necessary. I think the comparisons across countries that come out of doing business have really energized some countries. And that's why, as I indicated, I feel this is an area that, in reflection, 
I didn't do as well a job as I should have done. That I, when I went to these countries, I should have started comparing countries and saying, do you know what other countries have done and some of the impact of best performance. I also think the domestic private sector plays a key role. And in that, the indigenous private sector plays a particularly important role. And I think one of the challenges that IFC confronts is, you know, they're a pretty expensive organization. And so it's very easy for them to pick up a large investment, tens of millions of dollars, finance it. It's much harder for them to do some of the smaller indigenous things that would, that would make a difference. And so I think we have to recalibrate and make sure we get incentives right at the country level. But the private sector story to me in both Africa, and I've, I've pointed out some of, the, some of the, the, the progress in Africa, but that's not an area in Africa that as I'm enthusiastic about, quite frankly, as I am about what's been done in macro reform. Because it was very familiar to me when I came to the Pacific to hear government officials and to hear people talk about all their concerns about the private sector. And as I indicated, since, you know, since telecoms has been a revolution, I had thought that would create an environment where people would be a little bit more uh, deferential and appreciative of the private sector. But my honest judgment is it hasn't happened in Africa broadly and it hasn't happened in the Pacific. Uh, finally, African experience, I just have to make an observation. Uh, when I was named uh, vice president of East Asian Pacific, everybody thought at the bank thought it was a little crazy. You know, why are they sending this guy from Africa to the Pacific? So the assumption in the bank was, you know, Africa at that point wasn't performing as well. So they were sending Adams to the Pacific to lower growth rates, so they stayed clients of the bank a little longer. Uh, the good news is I didn't succeed if that was the, if that was the objective. But, but more broadly, I, I find the use of country experience, the of successes and also failures across regions and within regions to be a very effective mechanism to create a dialogue. So I think the successes, wherever the successes are, one has to find effective ways to communicate them. I think doing more work on Africa to both, in some areas, highlight successes, but I'd also add that Australia has some unique advantages for work on Africa. Australia's work on dryland farming is tremendously relevant to Africa and very important to Africa. And uh, so, you know, its work in minerals is also very, very important. There was, an issue, there was an issue on sustainability that we talked about in Africa. Um, you know, Africa has such margins to improve performance that I'm not very worried about sustainability as I am in the Asian context, quite frankly. And what you're going to find, I think, with increased private sector engagement and increased international engagement is actually stronger emphasis on sustainability. So from my perspective, that becomes an asset, an asset in the region. I'll stop here. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim's the star of our show tonight. He wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Harold Mitchell who's just taking the call. <laughs> <laughs> bridge between Harold Mitchell and Jim Adams is Stephen Howe. He's going to do the thank you and I'm going to take a call too. <laughs> you can sit down. I can sit down. <laughs> All right, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, this is a very important occasion for us. Indeed, it's a highlight of the year for our Development Policy Centre. Our first Harold Mitchell 
development policy lecture was in was last year. In fact, it was almost exactly a year, a year ago, another Thursday in November, the 22nd. And as Tom mentioned, it was delivered by Amelia Perez, the finance minister of Timor-Leste, on her reform agenda for Timor and fragile states more broadly. Uh, we were worried then that we wouldn't be able to maintain the high standard we'd set, uh, but we have. Thanks to you, Jim Adams, for your very important and timely lecture. No one else could have given the lecture that you've just delivered. You have unique insights into and unparalleled experience with these two regions that are rarely compared, Africa and the Pacific. And by sharing your insights and suggestions, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, you've also travelled a long way to be here, so thank you very much. And I hope your speech will have the impact that it deserves and will certainly work hard to ensure that it does. Uh, this has been a very busy 12 months for us. It's not over yet. In fact, we have another five events between now and the end of the year on Afghanistan, Syria, and two on our main focus, which is uh, the Pacific region. Our details are outside, but we, I will just mention we conclude with our eight stakeholder survey launch on December the 12th. I'd particularly like to invite you all to that. Uh, unfortunately, Harold's had to go and take a uh, media call, but uh, well, Stephanie, I'll thank you. Uh, and Harold, both for coming here and for your support uh, for our centre. The Harold Mitchell Foundation is our major supporter and uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we do uh, without you. So thank you very much. I'd also like to thank my uh, co-workers at the Development Policy Centre who are here and uh, my colleagues at ANU for their support, uh, particularly Tom and Andrew, uh, for coming tonight and the Vice-Chancellor sends his apologies but will be joining us later for dinner. It's great to be part of the Crawford School uh, the College of Asia and the Pacific, and the ANU, all august institutions. Finally, thank you everyone uh, for coming here on a Thursday evening. The interest we get in our events, our blogs, and our research is very encouraging. And now, I'd like to invite you all for a drink. So we don't normally do drinks at our events, or we've stopped actually, because these are austerity times. <laughs> uh, but there are also times to celebrate, and uh, this is one of them. So thank you everyone, and please do stay for a drink. been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>